It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? The evidence was circumstantial, and the prosecution brought Wayne Williams to trial for two of the 28 killings. Apartments on Buford Highway, where we now have new developments in the ongoing investigation of the Centennial Park bombing. General Robert Abrams, for the first time, and officially calls the Tawana Brawley story a lie. At a press conference this morning, Seattle Police Chief Robert Hansen announced a special task force being formed to study Ted Bundy. Join us now as we go beyond criminal headlines. And I'm your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett. This week, we're covering the Tex McIver murder trial with 95.5 WSB's Veronica Waters. Veronica is a general assignment reporter who specializes in legal cases. She has covered a countless number of trials across the state of Georgia for WSB, including the Tex McIver murder trial. She is absolute magic when it comes to trial coverage. And I think she seriously underestimated herself on this one because her recollection of the Tex McIver saga and her insight is just incredible. So I want to jump into our conversation as quickly as possible. Notes for anyone not familiar with the Tex McIver case. Tex and his wife, Diane, made headlines in fall of 2016. They were driving back from their Putnam County farmhouse, which is about 75 miles east of Atlanta, Georgia. We'll get into the what and the how, but Tex had his gun in the back seat of the car with him. Diane was in the front passenger seat. Again, the what and the how we will unpack, but his gun goes off, hits Diane through the seat in front of him. They rush her to Emory University Hospital. She passes away early the next morning. So two years later, obviously a lot happens in between fall of 2016 and spring of 2018. Tex maintains this was a total and complete accident, but in spring of 2018, a jury finds him guilty of murdering his wife. He's still currently serving a sentence of life with the possibility of parole. Some things I'd want you to note about Diane McIver. Her friends through testimony said she was tough as nails. She didn't have the happiest childhood, but she worked her way up to a position as the president of U.S. Enterprises Incorporated. She had some expensive taste, but again, she'd worked very hard for her money. What they emphasized was most important about Diane is her love for her godson, Austin. Austin affectionately calls her Mommy Di. Diane is very close with his parents. She pays for his nursery, his schooling. So just something else I'd want you to note as we unpack Veronica's trial coverage, which we're going to right now, I promise. I could have talked to her for hours and hours about this, and we almost did. So without further ado, let's go beyond criminal headlines on the Tex McIver murder trial with 95.5 WSB's Veronica Waters. Tex McIver, you said is a prominent attorney. I never heard of him before the Tex McIver saga began. His wife, Diane, president of U.S. Enterprises Incorporated, which was the parent company of Corey Airport Services. So she was very successful. This was both their second marriage. So they came into this marriage, just painting a picture, both very wealthy. September 25th, 
2016. That's where this all begins. They're driving back. I guess they'd been at a weekend away at their house in Putnam County. They're driving back through Atlanta. It's Diane's friend, Danny Joe Carter, that's driving. Diane is in the front passenger seat. Tex McIver is behind her in the back seat. So from his account of things, what happened next was totally accidental, which we now know a jury concluded otherwise, but he claims they were going through, I guess they were near Piedmont Park. It was a bad neighborhood. He had asked Diane to give him his gun. So he had his gun with him. Texas account is that he fell asleep. They may have gone over a speed bump and his gun went off. It went through the seat in front of him hitting Diane. She would die, go on to die early the next morning at Emory University Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. So Tex spoke publicly about it soon after he had an interview with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution where he said, again, underscoring this was a total and complete accident. And then details start to come out about his income, her wealth, and that more recent, you know, prior to September 25th, 2016, he had, I guess, gone through some kind of loss of equity in his partnership at his law firm. He was starting to depend on Diane financially a little more um, than he had maybe initially let on in his first public comments about the case. So 95.5 WSB's Veronica Waters, tell us a little about yourself, what you do for WSB in Atlanta, Georgia. And then kind of how, I guess, after, again, fall of 2016, as this is all unraveling, how did your coverage of this saga begin? I began working at WSB Radio in 1997, the end of 1997, and um, it is only the second professional job I have ever had. I came to WSB after a year at the Southern Urban Network, which is an urban focused sister network to the Mississippi Network, where I worked for a year, um, having come out of college doing college radio. And so I learned a lot of what I know about radio and news coverage just from feet to the fire, you know, sort of getting in there and doing it. Um, because I was not even a journalism or communications major at Mississippi State and, and at Alcorn State. Previously, I was actually a biology major and thought I was going to go to med school. And I did radio for fun. And I ended up still having fun at it several years later. So along the way at WSB Radio, I became sort of known for being passionate about legal affairs. And it was kind of one of those things where it really just developed out of nowhere. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy in that I covered a case and it might've been the gold club case, which was a big racketeering case that was centered around a strip club and everything. And I was able to get so many sort of exclusive interviews and talks with people and report stuff that other people necessarily didn't. And I got all this commendation for having done such a great job on that, that my program director at the time, Pete Spriggs, says, you really have a gift for this. And we really want you to be the one who covers trial in, in court cases for us because you just it's magic when you do it. And so from that, I think my passion for legal reporting sort of 
fulfilled that. It's like, well, they say I'm magic at this. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be magic at this. <laughs> but in the, in the meantime, you don't have, we didn't really have beats by the time I came to WSB radio either there. I came in at a time when people kind of had beats, like, uh, you know, one of the things I used to do in college radio and it was, I would call police stations or whatever and try to find whatever was going on. You call this department, you call whatever. Um, we didn't really do that, but we all have sort of things that we kind of specialize in. And uh, so I'm a general assignment reporter, which means that anything that pops on the radar is going to be something that I could potentially cover. It could be the opening of a police precinct in one of the zones of Atlanta or Roswell, right. <laughs> or it can be something like a guy who shoots his wife in the back inside of an SUV and says it was an accident. And so this case came to me after it had been out for a couple of months. And the first reporting that I can remember really doing on it was after Tex McIver was arraigned on these first charges at the Fulton County Jail of reckless conduct and involuntary manslaughter. And it was just, we had seen some reporting in the Atlanta Journal Constitution before that, which of course had caught our eye um, because the political analyst that we use for a lot of our stories, Bill Crane, was part of the story in a way because he was also, as a public affairs guy or public relations guy, tapped by Tex McIver to make comments on the record for him. So we were aware of it. And, you know, I had maybe talked with Bill once or twice about it. But the first reporting that I really, really remember was Tex McIver in jail, shuffling in in his jail shoes and jumpsuit and um, and hearing those charges against him for the first time. And his face being like, I can't believe you're saying this about me. This is this is you could see on his face. He just thought this is baseless. Why am I here? It's so interesting because what was it? Maybe not three months after September 2016, when when the shooting happens, it was December of that same year that he starts selling off Diane's clothing. He has that huge estate sale trying to be as objective as possible. But I just remember hearing that and thinking, you know, he said this is what she, Diane, would have wanted. It was according to her will. The state sale lasts several days. Thousands of people go. It's not, in my opinion, it wasn't the best look. Did you think it made any difference or impact on the court of public opinion where Tex McIver is concerned? I think it did for sure. And I have to say that if the rest of the public, though, was like me, a lot of these details didn't sort of gel until the actual trial for me. Keep in mind that I wasn't consistently on this case. And I have to say, I have to give a real shout out to the reporting that was done by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution because they were able to get a couple of interviews with Tex McIver before this thing really blew up. Right. And they had Bill Crane and they had these these quotes from him and from Bill talking about what this, what they say happened that night, what Tex says he was feeling that night. And it, it became sort of um, this thing that the AJC really seized and got some great insight on. But for me, a general assignment reporter who specializes in legal cases, but is on a staff that doesn't have the ability to have me dedicated to something and really grab a hold of it like a bulldog and, and you know, gnaw at it until, you know, <laughs> the bone is dry. Uh, you know, I'm covering this thing sort of sporadically. 
And so to be quite honest with you, a lot of this didn't come together for me until the months following it. And when you sort of put all these things together, and then of course, at the trial, when it all is lined up in a very neat little row of duckling facts, that's when you sort of say, Ooh, right. Right. That makes a lot of sense because the AJC, like you said, they really honed in on this and they were looking at some of the reports that say, you know, he, there was one that emerged, I guess he owed Diane $350,000 at the time of her death, which later the defense argued, it's not that black and white. McIver said that money went to building a barn in Putnam County for our guests or, you know, let's talk about the fact that the McIvers were very politically connected um, they were often entertaining those in GOP circles um, at this place, the, this really, really lovely guest house um, that they called the saloon, where they were known for throwing great parties. It was, you know, this this ranch was expansive. It's a great vacation place to be. It's um, all this beautiful land and you got these longhorn steers and it's just a, a place when you see clips, video and pictures, you know, Diane and text at the center of all this hubbub. It was a fitting building befitting a couple that wanted to have these big, expansive parties and, you know, have people come out and really be comfortable. And you're not, you know, you're not crammed up elbow to elbow with somebody. This is, a, you know, an, an expansive building, expansive land where you could really spread out and lounge around and have an amazing, amazing time. And, and I don't know if you know this, but that $350,000 loan was not the only money that Tex had actually borrowed from Diane. I believe that before they were even married, he had borrowed 750 grand from her at one point. So this wasn't, Tex was quite wealthy in his own right, had had great net worth um, when he and Diane first began dating, when she finally deigned to give him the time of day, because he worked really hard on that. Um, And she was not interested for a while, but friends of hers have said he really liked her for her. He didn't come after her because of her money. She had money, but so did Tex McIver. And so there were two people in a relationship who who had a bunch of money. Now, Diane was a very generous person with her friends, we learned, but she was very serious about her money. And even if she were to lend a friend money, she would charge interest on that loan. Wow. She would, she would often lend money. So lending money to this guy that she was in a romantic relationship with is not necessarily new, but Diane lent money. She typically would charge a 5% interest rate. And one of her assistants was responsible for making sure that people made timely payments on those loans. Wow. I, I mean, I guess it makes sense yeah, that she was portrayed as someone who I know I read recently too. You have to understand from those that were closest to her, you'll hear she was sort of a rags to riches, which her closest friends say not necessarily rags to riches, but she definitely <laughs> earned her way. She yes. did. And that's maybe why she was in some respect, very careful about her money and where it was lent and who it was given to and, and all. And I guess she had a godson too, who she loved and spoiled. And so it's not as if she wasn't generous, but someone who's maybe coming from not necessarily 
a very, you know, wealthy background would be, would have that kind of uh, approach to how she spends her money. That, that right. makes sense. She could be, you know, from, from what I would hear about Diane, I think that if you needed a car, she might be as likely to buy a car for you as she would be to lend you money. If you asked her for a loan to buy yourself a car. So it just depended. I don't think it was anything as simple as how she felt that day, but she wasn't incredibly to the people who knew and loved her generous person. And yet she was also very much a business person. And if you, as a friend wanted to borrow, like I said, if you wanted to borrow money from her, she would loan you the money, but she also would draw up a contract that said you, you needed to pay this money. And so for these loans that Tex had, he would typically pay the interest on the loans monthly and he had never missed a payment. But when you're talking about a loan to the example that you used, the $350,000 loan, I think his payments were just on the interest were $1,500 a month. Diane had re redrafted the terms of the loan so she could call it due anytime. Oh. They'd restructured it, which dropped his payments to like $1,400 a month from $1,500 a month, which may not seem like a lot when you're pulling in a half million dollars a year as an equity partner who shares in your law firm's profits. But as you become an income partner, when you're not producing cases and bringing in income like you were, and so you drop to a, a salary instead of a share of the profits. If you if you go from five or six hundred thousand dollars a year to as low as one hundred and thirty four thousand dollars a year at one time, a fifteen hundred dollar payment monthly is a chunk of change, considering the fact that you're also responsible for the maintenance and upkeep and salaries of that beautiful ranch in Putnam County, which will run you another twenty grand a month. So that brings That's us so to true. the financial implications that the prosecution said this case had here was this really all about money which so initially atlanta police atlanta police seemed to be i I wouldn't say convinced or siding with but they had charged tex with involuntary manslaughter and reckless conduct at first so it seemed like people were believing his account of that night his version of the events that it was accidental he'd fallen asleep maybe they went over a speed bump he had been anxious if they were in a bad neighborhood It wasn't the first time the AJC pulled out from their records this 1990 incident where he had fired his gun at a car with three teens. It was outside his DeKalb County home. So he was not uh, shy about using his gun if necessary, uh, if he felt, uh, I guess, and they found at the time probable cause to indict him for that particular incident, but it was settled privately after the fact and the case was dropped. So it's painting a picture, then pan to spring of 2017. We're talking about their finances. The Fulton County District Attorney's Office goes in on the McIver's financial records because it almost felt like they didn't quite believe this was an accident. Would you agree? Absolutely. So to step back into December of that previous year when McIver was actually charged by Atlanta police. You have to look at how the prosecutor's office then looked at the investigation that Atlanta police had done. And lawyers will tell you that it's not unusual for a prosecutor's office, for a DA's office to look at a case and maybe add some clarifying charges or something. But it was rare to see police charge someone with involuntary manslaughter and then have the DA's office say, this is malice murder. 
I mean, those things are a world apart almost. The only thing they have in common is a death, <laughs> you know? Right. And so you saw clearly that Atlanta police thought one thing and the DA's office thought another. But again, one of the things that we learned at the trial was what the prosecution saw as all of these holes that were left unfilled by the initial investigation of Atlanta police. For example, the lead detective on the case, Darren Smith, didn't talk to Tex McIver that night, even though he was at the hospital. He didn't even try to see if McIver was still there at Emory, which he was, and he didn't talk to him. He did talk to Danny Joe Carter for several hours, but he didn't talk to Tex McIver. He didn't talk to the nurses who were at the hospital. He explained at trial that that was because, and his wife is a nurse, but he said he finds that nurses are sort of hotbeds for gossip and they're sort of amateur detectives, if you will. And so he prefers to hear directly from doctors, not so much, you know, these sort of busybody nurses or whatever. So he didn't talk to any of the nurses who had observed Tex McIver's behavior that night or ask them what they had heard. And when Tex McIver agreed two days after his wife's death to come in and talk to police with his lawyers and his lawyer had said, well, you're not going to ask him about the shooting. You, he'll, he'll talk to you, but you can't talk about the shooting. And he, even in that interview, seemed to just take McIver's statements for what they were. He asked some questions, yes, but there wasn't a deference necessarily to him, but there seemed to be a definite willingness to believe McIver's version of what happened. And he didn't ask him to demonstrate how the gun had gone off or how he was holding the gun. He didn't even ask Tex McIver whether the gun was cocked or not. And he also said later at trial, Smith did, that he didn't think that was an important question what? because he said the trigger was pulled. That's all I needed to know. So it didn't matter whether the gun was cocked or not. The reason that some people, many people would disagree with Darren Smith on that is because Tex McIver shot Diane with a 38 revolver that has a shrouded hammer, which takes a lot more pressure, trigger pressure to pull and fire when it's not cocked versus when it is cocked. The difference is, is 10 pounds of pressure. It takes just two pounds of pressure, which is a tiny bag of sugar, not even a big bag of sugar, <laughs> to, pull a, to pull a trigger on that gun when it's cocked. When it's not cocked, it takes two big bags of sugar plus one little bag. It's 12 pounds of pressure to pull that. So you have to pull much harder on that trigger to make it fire. And so he didn't ask him to clarify that. As a matter of fact, one of the first things Tex had said early on in that interview was that he hadn't touched the gun. It had been in this console. He hadn't, he hadn't fiddled with it or, or something. I think maybe fiddled with it or something like that. You know, it, the, the gun had been kept in a Publix bag, uh, you know, to deter anybody who might, you know, break in looking around for whatever. He said, you know, people always want to break in and look for guns. So I put it in a public's bag. So it would kind of look innocuous or whatever. And people wouldn't know what they were seeing if they saw the public's bag. You know, so the very clear impression was the gun was not cocked. So it didn't have that sort of two pounds of pressure trigger. But Darren Smith didn't directly ask him. 
And that would become another issue later at trial. So you have all of these things that the prosecution is way willing to point out that Atlanta police didn't do. They didn't pull the, you know, this was Darren Smith's first case with financial records, he said. So he looked at some papers, but he didn't really understand what he was looking at. He's like money going in, money going out is what he said. And so he didn't really ask someone to come in and, and see if there was this motive that ultimately the state said was behind this shooting of Diane McIver and everything that Tex McIver did after it. But it ultimately boiled down to Darren Smith and this perfunctory investigation, at least according to the state, that said I believe what this guy said. I'm going to charge him with reckless conduct and involuntary manslaughter, which means uh, for anyone who doesn't know, an involuntary manslaughter charge is what happens when someone commits a misdemeanor that leads to a death. So in this case, the the misdemeanor was the reckless conduct with him handling that gun in such a way that, as he said, he fell asleep with the gun, obviously pointing toward his beloved wife and then, you know, bump or no bump. It went off and she died. And so that's where those charges came from. But the state continued to dig and dig and dig and believe that it was not an accident. And I think that's in large part because of everything that Tex McIver did to your earlier point with the selling of the stuff and comments that he made to people and the different stories he told about how the shooting itself actually happened and all of this stuff coming together and the state became convinced that there was an outstanding will that Landa Diane McIver had had put out there somewhere that Tex knew was going to leave him out in the cold and thought, I've got to protect myself and my interest and I need to get rid of this lady. And so when they were serving the subpoena for those financial records, that's what they were looking for. They were trying to find any evidence of where could this will possibly be that we are convinced is out here. That, by the way, we never, ever saw or that they ever found. And there was some disagreement about what was going to happen. So when they had been talking about getting new wills done, because, of course, she wanted Diane was so much a business person. She was so exacting. She was always prepared. So it's like, why would this woman who had gotten a new godson whom she adored Mm -hmm. in the time since her first will, why would her next will not have him in it? Because there was no mention of him in it. So the state says, this is how you know Diane had a new will. Because why would her will not mention her beloved godson? Right. That she didn't have when she did that first will. Why would her new will include $100,000 in cash and several pieces of really high-end jewelry for a woman who wasn't her friend anymore to whom she hadn't spoken in seven years because they were so estranged. This is the state saying, you know there's a new will out there somewhere. You know that she was working on this. We may not have it on paper, but we know that this would, why would this woman who was so professional, so exacting, so methodical, so business-like, so well-prepared for everything, ignore this and not have a new will in place? Right. That's what I was going to say. So, so to your point, the, the DA's office ends up charging him with malice murder, felony murder, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, possession of a firearm during the commission of a felony, and influencing a witness, which involved Danny Joe Carter, Diane's friend who was driving the Ford Expedition the night that the shooting occurred. And on that note, we're getting into the prosecution is building its case. There are delays in the trial proceedings. 
Tex ends up going to jail for, I think, about eight months. He gets out on bond. More and more details emerge. The intrigue builds. And (laughs) referencing Danny Joe Carter, we finally go to trial in 2018. Her testimony, being the person who was driving the Ford Expedition that night, had to be fascinating to hear. And how do you think it impacted the case overall? The thing that's so fascinating about Danny Joe's testimony was that it almost showed us in hindsight how her feelings and view of the actual shooting developed from the moment that it happened to how it changed a few days later how she looked at that situation seemed to change with time. One of the first things that Danny had said to someone was not about there was a bump in the road as Tex McIver had claimed in one of his stories. And that's why the gun went off um, that he wasn't even handling the gun really. But Danny said that in one of Diane's ways of sort of directing Texas actions, if you will, was that, because the couple had been drinking wine at dinner before they'd gotten back in the truck, they'd gone to Longhorn and they had red wine. And then they had red wine in this uh, little Yeti uh, thing that was with them. And they had, you know, passed the cup back and forth a little bit. They were drinking this wine. And so she said that her impression was that Tex McIver was sleeping. One of the reasons that she also thought that was because she pointed out that Tex was a real political junkie. And they had been talking about the presidential debates. She and Diane had been in the front. You know, they're best friends. They gab about everything. And they had been talking about the recent presidential debates. And Tex wasn't chiming in on that conversation, which to Danny was a sign that he was probably asleep. And she recalled, she said, that Diane was saying, Tex, Tex, wake up. Tex, wake up. If you sleep now, you're not going to be able to sleep tonight. And so she said it was one of those moments where Diane was like, Tex, wake up. Boom. The gun goes off. Keep in mind that Danny also didn't tell Darren Smith that night into the early next morning, in the wee hours of the morning, when she was talking to lead investigator Darren Smith, that Tex had told her to say you came down later. And she explained she never said that because she thought it looked bad for Tex. So again, we have these things that you are maybe okay with overlooking but that seemed really ominous to you as days go by and you hear him on the phone telling a story to somebody that doesn't quite line up or not telling somebody I'm the one who shot her or I need you to talk to these press people or I need you to come make a statement so this court reporter can jot everything that you say down or I need to make notes about what you're saying. And it's this stuff that happens over time where you could see that Danny Joe's initial Statements to police were like, I am so sure this was an accident. And she was really fond of Tex at that time, she said. But then a few days, a couple weeks go by. She's not feeling as fond of Tex anymore. Now that that comment about tell the police that you just came down here as a family friend. Now it's sticking out to her as something that's not quite right about this. So the defense kept saying this is an accidental shooting. He was asleep. He has this REM sleep disorder, you know, where he acts out in his in his dreams. You know, uh, he was diagnosed with this, they say, in January, which was right before uh, four months before the trial. Um, But they say he'd had they say he had had evidence of this behavior for years. 
but the official diagnosis they say came conveniently in, in January. But they say, you know, this is this was something that he had had before. Now, one of the ways that the state sort of um, tried to call BS on that was to say, based on Tex McIver's own statements, what he said about the gun and what he said about how he felt that night. Tex McIver said that when they were in this section of town under this underpass, that it made the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. The state's rebuttal expert on the sleep disorder said, if you are so afraid that the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up, you're not going to be so deep in sleep a mere five minutes later to be able to fall into the level of sleep of this diagnosed sleep disorder to be able to act out and pull a trigger without knowing it. So that's how the state sort of tried to call BS on this. I fell asleep. The gun was in my lap. And it was just offensive to so many people, including the jurors, that this guy who was so capable with guns, who preached gun safety, who owned 44 weapons, including several revolvers like that 638 model that killed his wife, would fall asleep with a gun in his lap facing his wife right in front of him. So interesting. So you you touched on the defense. And as we get into trial coverage, I want to start digging into the defense's side of things, of course, because we've sort of laid out now the prosecution's case. And you had lead prosecutor Clint Rucker, who was pretty adamant that, like you said, they were they were going to go in on the financial records and try to discover motive. But there was nothing ever from my observation concrete that they found. Aside from I think that's a really good point about the holes in the investigation and some of the way Tex acted after. And the prosecution pointed to the fact that Tex did not call 911 first. He called his criminal defense attorney first. He did not take her to the nearest hospital. There were three hospitals that were closer than Emory University mm-hmm. that they could have gone to. It's holes. At least it's suspicious. It's not that black and white. So what was the defense saying, though? It seemed like they portrayed it entirely differently. What was the defense saying and what was, I guess, significant for them as far as how did they poke holes in the prosecution's case? One of the most fascinating things that I thought about this case that I thought of during the trial itself was that everything, almost everything that Tex McIver did that made him look guilty could have also made him look innocent. And that is what the defense said really succinctly at trial. So let me back up and give you a little bit of information about a lot of the things that we heard from people who, keep in mind, said they really never saw Diane and Tex fight. They seemed like lovebirds. They seemed like teenagers in love. They loved each other tremendously. He worshipped Diane McIver is what we heard. He, the morning that they Um, that this deadly incident happened. He had gotten up and made Danny Joe and Diane coffee and sausage biscuits that morning. He was, you know, they were darling this and honey that and darling, darling, darling. Now, Diane was also a very strong personality woman. Is Is that a phrase? Strong personality. She had a powerful and dynamic personality, which meant that she commanded a room. She commanded those outdoor parties. You know, when Diane was around, you knew it and you knew that she was in charge. And part of that 
personality was, as we heard from one of her close friends, an acerbic wit. She was not shy about telling those she loved how she felt about your eating habits, your your shape. Should you be eating that? Should you be working out more? She would um, berate people on the golf course. You know, she'd, hey, hey, little girl, did the wind blow up in your face is one of the things we heard. You know, like she would tell a man who missed an easy putt on the golf. Hey, little girl, what happened? The wind blow up in your face. And so she would also do this sort of what you might call henpecking of text, McIver. So he may have, this was a couple who may have fit together just perfectly, but maybe Tex was a little more beta in the relationship than was Diane, because some people also said that Diane's needling of them as friends, as well as uh, the way that she would somehow nag or berate Tex would make you uncomfortable to a point. It, you know, it was so evident that it would make you a little bit uncomfortable. So Don Samuel said, when Tex McIver said a few days before Diane's memorial service to this guy, hey, you know, I think Janie, who was their neighbor, I don't think Janie's happy with her husband. You think I can get her back? Maybe I can get her back. And when he was not crying, according to most of the witnesses that we heard, and when he was selling her things within months after she died. And when he had the masseuse at his house, sleeping in a pallet on the bedroom floor in the bedroom that they had shared for a decade and things along that point. This is evidence of a guy who didn't kill his wife on purpose, because if you had intentionally killed her, wouldn't you do everything in your power to look like the grieving widower? Wouldn't you wail and beat the walls and scream and cry, my darling is gone, instead of doing all this stuff and saying all this stuff that makes you look like a heel? And I thought it was one of the most fascinating things about that trial. Everything That's that so McIver true. did that made him look guilty could have also made him look just as innocent. And that was what the defense focused on. In that is so Interesting, because now that that's also something that the defense called the prosecution out for, that so much of what they built their case on was speculation. And you would think, and from what I remember reading to Don Samuel and Texas other attorney, who was Bruce Harvey, Bruce Harvey and Amanda Clark Palmer. Incredible. I mean, that's I was going to say, from what I've read, like the A team of defense attorneys. Yes, for sure. For sure. This was one of the great, great things about my job is that when I get to cover a trial, I am most of the time looking at lawyers who have amazing reputations and are completely masterful in a courtroom. This isn't to listen. I'm not trying to throw shade on other <laughs> other cases I've covered with with attorneys whose names aren't as big. But I'm just saying that I I get to go in a courtroom oftentimes with folks I've seen in action before. And I know that they I know what they're bringing. I know that they're super masterful. I know that they are scholars of the law. They have this incredible way of thinking and they have a courtroom presence that is magnetic and is just amazing. And so watching these folks go up against each other and zealously prosecute or zealously defend their client is just 
it's got to be a law student's dream. It's my dream because I love watching this kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> and if I were ever a, a, a crime victim or had someone in my family hurt, I would want these prosecutors on the case. And if I was ever accused of a crime, I'd want these defense attorneys defending me. They're all that good. Yeah. Well, and like you said, to take a, a prosecution's case that seemed, again, like they were really determined to make him look guilty and to essentially say, and I never necessarily thought about it that way, if I'm being honest, but yeah, what makes him look guilty could also make him look entirely innocent. And to argue, I mean, I I would be interested to hear, I I guess you could even say that the reason his first call was to his criminal defense attorney is because he's an attorney and it doesn't, you don't have to necessarily think it's right or wrong, but that it wasn't necessarily, again, that calculated that I'm not calling 911 first. Um, You know what? It's like death by a thousand cuts. It's not even so necessarily what happened that he shot his wife in the back. It's everything that came after. It's 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 the fact that he chose to go to Emory. One of his friends had said to someone early on, if you have lived in Atlanta for a week, you know about Grady Hospital. Right. When I first came here, like one of the I remember one of the first stories I covered it some, was a, shoot, a police officer had been shot. And I know every time a police officer was shot, I knew they were going to Grady. I had to I had to learn about this. Why is it that they always go to this place called Grady? You know, because Grady was also known for indigent care or whatever, which I think is a, a lot of what people think about, you know, with Grady. And, and frankly, I wonder if that's what was in Tex McIver's mind you know, that night. But he said that he chose Emory because he told police he chose Emory Hospital because it was a client of his law firm. Right. So that's why he chose to not look up directions to Grady Hospital, which has a level one trauma center. But to to finish my own thought, when police officers are shot, they go to Grady because Grady is one of the best hospitals in the country. And it has a level one trauma center. And at that time was the only one in Atlanta or in the state of Georgia. We now have two. We, Atlanta Medical Center is now a level one trauma center as well. But at that time, Grady Hospital was where you wanted to go if you had a gunshot wound, if you had a serious, if you had any sort of traumatic injury or whatever, Grady was where you wanted to go. So one of the friends early on said, if you've been in Atlanta for a week living here, you know about Grady Hospital. So why he didn't take it to Grady, I don't know. That raised a red flag with him. And it was all the stuff that he said afterwards, you know, hey, do you think I can get Diane's social security? Hey, can you believe they want to charge me with reckless conduct about this thing? I mean, this is these are words from Tex McIver's own mouth that made people who were even close to them, who talked about what lovebirds they were, start to be suspicious about Tex McIver. I think in a way that they never would have been had he played the grieving widower. I think everyone would have said this is a horrible accident. He didn't mean to shoot his darling in the back, but it was for a lot of these folks, the the picture was coming together of something that didn't line up. And these these changing stories, I think he told somebody uh, that Danny Joe and, and Diane had been in an accident and that's how she died. And then somebody else, you know, then he said, uh, you know, there were all these these different things. And right. he told a couple people, you know, that he had been holding the gun or whatever. And Diane had, you know, we also learned that Diane said, you know, that he had been holding the gun. But but why tell all these people close to you different stories about how it happened? Why ask the SUV driver to say you came down later? Don't tell him you you drove us here. Tell him you came down as a friend of the family. You know, and the defense is like, well, hey, to, to Bruce Harvey's <laughs> cross-examination, isn't that the dumbest thing 
could you believe he would say such a stupid thing? You know, right. he's not trying to he's not thinking clearly or whatever, because she said she told him, you know, that doesn't make sense. Everyone saw me just drive in with you in the valet circle. Why would you want me to say that? And he's like, well, I know how these things can go. I don't trust these folks. I don't want you to get caught up. Just tell him you came later. Bah, whatever. So um, interesting. Yeah. So the defense really worked hard to tell this jury that this was all coincidental and it's more speculation than it is circumstantial evidence, which is a key point, I think, when you're talking to a jury, because prosecutors want you to know that circumstantial evidence is evidence. And if you ever sit on a jury or watch a trial, you'll often hear a prosecutor give you an example about snow and they'll say you went to bed and there was no snow on the ground. And you woke up the next morning, you look outside your window and there's snow. Now, you didn't see it snow, but circumstantial evidence would lead you to believe that if the streets and the yards are covered with snow, that it snowed overnight, even though you didn't see it snowing. And so that's a lesson that prosecutors want to teach juries. But the defense wanted to say, this is not even circumstantial evidence. Maybe there was a will. We haven't seen this will And it's not that the will was destroyed. We also don't have evidence of an email where some lawyer said, hey, here are your documents, you know, or I've got your stuff ready. Come sign this. Or we don't have one of the most powerful points to that was when the defense pointed out on its closing that the state had actually put out an ad to the legal community, essentially saying anybody who worked on a new will for Diane McIver, please contact us. And no one came forward. So the defense is like, you can't prosecute somebody and convict them of murder here when you just got maybe there was a will, but we don't have it for you. And they also said, sure, Texas income had fallen a whole, whole lot in the years since he had met, dated and married Diane. But why would he kill her? Because she was still bringing in the money. She was still worth millions of dollars. So why would he kill his golden goose? His income wasn't going to go back up. He was 74. He's winding down his career. He actually had plans to retire in 2017, at the end of 2017. That was his original goal. Why would he kill the woman who's worth $12 million? Why would he do that? And so the defense says, this is speculation. It's not circumstantial evidence. And you have got to know the difference. Don't believe this speculation. Don't look at this, these red herrings. You've got to say this is an accident in search of a motive, which is what Bruce Harvey called it. This is an accident in search of a motive. Don't let them convince you based on emotion and what a terrible guy that this guy it seems to be. Yeah, we get it. <laughs> he's, he's done and said some odious stuff, but that doesn't mean that he's a murderer. The racial angle that this case had, which wasn't uh, intentional, I think, when Bill Crane came out and said that the reason Tex McIver asked Diane for the gun was because they were in this bad part of town, basically this, this underpass where there might be homeless people carjackers or Black Lives Matter protesters. The fact that Tex McIver thought that that was something he should tell the press and have his spokesman tell the press and that he only saw something wrong with it when his lawyers said, according to this witness, uh, Jay Grover, who testified, 
my lawyers say I have fucked up this case with these comments. But he and Bill Crane thought that it made perfect sense. Tex McIver said that and Bill Crane delivered that message to the press. And both of them thought that it made sense to say, because as Bill Crane testified, I just thought having lived in Atlanta this long, if you say that you're afraid of homeless people, well, that's just not going to make any sense. But to Bill Crane, it did make sense that Tex McIver would say, well, I thought that Black Lives Matter protesters might be out there because things had gotten violent in Charlotte a couple of weeks before. So he understood basically why why Tex McIver needed to take out. And so and so the defense acknowledged that and they tried to, a lot of times to keep, you know, keep these little nuggets out that would um, make Tex look bad. You know, there was a there was some testimony that was allowed where we learned that a couple of the surgeons who came to tell Tex that Diane had passed away were, were coming to talk to him and and the judge allowed the testimony, but he didn't let the doctor to whom McIver said this testify. So the jury didn't see this doctor. So you kind of you have to listen to this and sort of paint your own picture. Right. But this other surgeon testified that they came to tell McIver that Diane had not made it. And this doctor, this other surgeon with him said, please have a seat here, sir, because they wanted him to sit down before they told him. And Tex McIver, before the, the other doctor, Dr. Syed, could get that statement out, said, don't tell me what to do, boy. And the doctor said, I wouldn't say he said it in a threatening manner, but it was definitely an aggressive manner. And so the jury is left with this picture of, you know, so the, some of the stuff that the, the defense did not want to come in, like these Black the Black Lives Matter comment. And, um, you know, and don't tell me what to do, boy, they thought it would be too prejudicial. But the judge, Robert McBurney, said the defense has made Tex McIver's character here central to his defense. And so the prosecution can be allowed to introduce this evidence. So you had this underlying current of race in a case where all of the players were white and a predominantly white jury. But once again, it goes back to. That's a very long way of saying once again, it goes back to them painting this picture of Tex McIver's character. And we are to believe as the jury listening in and the reporters listening, this guy is so smarmy. Of course, he killed his wife. Right. And it's so you have some 80 witnesses. The trial was about 20 days, right? Just about. Mm -hmm. We had a week off for like spring break in the middle of it. Okay. And you mentioned too, it was a unique trial, lots of drama, especially coming from the prosecution side. Um, What was you had said to me earlier uh, when we were discussing doing this episode on Tex McIver, something cool that the jury had gotten to do during the trial? One of the coolest things was that the jury got to do what I call visiting the crime scene because they got to go and sit in the actual SUV and sit in Tex McIver's seat. They could sit anywhere they want. They could sit in Danny Joe's seat. They could see, you know, see what her angle was. They could sit in Diane's seat. They could sit in Tex McIver's seat. They could see the bullet hole. They, the judge let them climb inside the truck with the gun. That was one of the coolest things too, is that this time they were allowed to not only get in it, but also take the gun in there with them. That had to be as a juror, so cool. And the immersive experience alone, but that that would stick with you as a member of that jury. So we've laid out in depth the prosecution's case, the defense's case painting an entirely different picture. And to that point, you 
you hit the nail on the head because it's almost as if everything that happened after the shooting, that's what's most important because there's really nothing concrete they could find that happened before. So it was all about honing in on what he did immediately after the shooting and then in the months after that. But as we know, the jury comes back with a guilty verdict. They did not find him guilty of malice murder, but of all other charges. What was your reaction? I know as a journalist, you have to be objective. You have to report the facts. But thinking back now, how do you feel about that verdict? Do you think that he intentionally killed Diane McIver? I don't know that I believe that he intentionally killed Diane McIver. There were some great points made about if he wanted to kill her and claim it was an accidental shooting, why didn't he do it at the ranch, which was way more isolated and much farther away from top tier hospitals. However, the state tried to address that in their closing and say, well, remember that he had tried to get Danny Joe to go home earlier with somebody else. And Danny Joe was like, no, I'll stay. So maybe he saw this as an opportunity to do it when they're in traffic in Atlanta, which which was originally remember why they got off 20 and ended up on the connector. You know, they were headed to the Buckhead condo and traffic was so bad, which is why they ended up taking taking off. I don't know that I believe Tex McIver decided this is a good time to kill my wife. What I do know were holes in his own claim cropped up at trial. And it seems to me that you could draw the conclusion that what he did afterwards was like, hey, I didn't mean to shoot her, but maybe I'll take advantage of it now that she is shot. Right. Now, there is a lot of stuff that the jury didn't get to hear. And because and that's because the judge said you can't fully be in this guy's head, even though you're trying to figure out what he was doing that night. Why did he tell Danny Joe to go on all these side streets to Emory Hospital when Grady was closer or these other hospitals were closer and um, and tell her to slow down on the way because women might be out walking their babies at 10 o'clock at night with their baby carriages. So you need to slow down going through these neighborhoods, you know, but but it's one of those things I've covered in which it seems like several bad decisions made. For example, neither Danny Joe nor text called 911. But we also learned completely coincidentally that had they called 911, because you know, we all know Atlanta traffic. Right. We right. all know, you know, how it can be. You can, you know, I tell everybody, I said, everything is at least 20 minutes away in, in Atlanta, even if you're like two miles away, because it'll probably take me 20 minutes. You know, it just so happens that there were paramedics 300 yards away from where the shooting actually happened. No Had they way. called 911, is it possible that those paramedics could have been there in a, a minute or two? Could they have possibly saved Diane? You know, because one of the things that is so tragic about this shooting is not just that there were three closer hospitals, because anything could happen in Atlanta traffic that makes that commute. Also, it could have also taken nine minutes to get to Grady as it as it did to get to Emory. But Emory is not known for gunshot wounds. And so part of it has an amazing staff. It's a fine, you know, Emory is known for also being great, but it's not a trauma one center. We learned that there had only been two other gunshot wounds brought there in five years time. And one of them was from a campus shooting and another one was from somebody that lived like a mile away. and so. It's just not a place where they are necessarily 
always ready to scrub in and attack a, a, an injury of that magnitude. So Diane was on a gurney for the better part of an hour while they needed to get the right people in place in order to help her. What could have happened? We don't know. If they had called 911 and they said, oh my gosh, you know, 300 yards away, there are paramedics right here. They'll be right there or, or drive over here to this fire station or whatever, you know, and they could have, could that have made the difference in Diane's life? So could it have been an accidental shooting? Sure. It could have been an accidental shooting. Did he possibly then take advantage of the fact that his wife was dead to think about how he could shore up his own bottom line and take his checking accounts out of the red and get her social security and think about dating his ex again, also very possible. And it was those comments and actions that made people who loved them as a couple start to suspect this guy that they never would have, I think, previously. That maybe like you pointed out, he's not a great guy to say the least. And maybe a different, you know, things like this, again, understatement, but it brings the best and the worst out of people. And it it seems to have unfortunately brought the worst out of Tex McIver and the way he handled things. And that's true that maybe it was a series of bad decisions and just a tragedy all the way around that he decided to take advantage of in being older now. So he's still in jail. I read recently he requested a new trial. It was denied. Is that really all we've heard since this guilty verdict? Is that, I mean, what else have we heard about Tex McIver since then? It seems like it went away sort of after that. And that he's, do you, he's where he, on some level, he was responsible for the loss of life. So is he where he needs to be? It's, it's sort of like, I've talked about this with someone before about Oscar Pistorius in South Africa who killed his wife, thought she was an intruder. He claimed it was completely accidental, but he still acknowledges not that it makes it right that he is responsible that she is dead mm-hmm. whether it was an accident or not so just kind of coming full circle what are your final takeaways about this as someone who's covered a lot of trials what does this case say in that regard about i mean is he it, not to say we can obviously it's still tough to say did he do it on purpose did he do it on accident but is he where he should be in jail Had the jury elected to convict Tex McIver of involuntary manslaughter, which was a lesser included offense on the murder count, he would have still been in prison. He would have still paid with a portion of his life for Diane's violent death, but he wouldn't be facing 30 years behind bars before he's eligible for parole. He would have gotten a maximum sentence of 10 years. And I think there are people, including myself, who would always argue that unless in self-defense, the taking of a life must always have some sort of punishment that goes with it. Should you be convicted of first degree murder, as people would say, (laughs) you know, what people call malice murder, should you be convicted of felony murder or malice murder because you accidentally killed someone while mishandling a gun? I think people would probably people would probably say no. I think the tragedy of this is that he is serving so much time behind bars for something that he did that took the life of this woman. He had chased for months before she would even go out on a date with him and pay him any attention and that he's always got to live with that, whether he 
is behind bars or not. It's something that he always has to remember. And if we are to believe that he loved and worshiped and adored her the way that he did, I mean, that is a huge, huge punishment. The questions that surround how this shooting happened are ones that are hard to reconcile with someone who did this on purpose, who intentionally killed his wife. And listen, I'm not, some people say that they're confounded by the verdict. I've heard that a lot because they're saying, if you convict him of aggravated assault, why didn't you convict him of malice murder, which meant he meant for her to die. And so that is not, it's not completely unusual. I've seen juries do this before. I've seen jurors convict on the, on the felonies underlying, but not convict of murder counts. You know, juries can almost do anything they want, but it almost says to me that maybe the jurors were thinking the same thing. Maybe he did mishandle this gun. Maybe this guy who was on this standing committee with the American Bar Association about gun violence, who preached about gun safety to people, who was known for being able to toss a bottle into the air and hit it with a gun, with a bullet, you know, before it fell to the ground. Maybe this guy who owned 44 weapons should have known better than to fall asleep with a gun in his lap that was pointed at the love of his life in front of him inches away. But maybe that's what that jury was thinking about when they said, we're not going to convict him of malice because I don't think he meant to do it, but I think he was okay with it once it happened. At his sentencing, did he show any remorse for what happened to Diane? So the sentencing, Judge McBurney, even though he gave Tex the possibility of parole uh, with his life sentence, which is mandatory with with a murder conviction now in Georgia, he noted that in all of the things that Tex McIver said when he read his statement at sentencing, Judge McBurney said, I never heard you say you're sorry. Tex McIver talked about the many letters that he had gotten, all of the support he had received, how people treated him how much he missed Chick-fil-A, how he felt that Diane was actually with him and that she, he said it was really real. What people say, like when you're connected to somebody, they're not really gone. He said, she's there with me, but he never said, I'm so sorry I did this. I will live with this forever. And the judge noted that in all of those things that you said about your support and your Chick-fil-A, I never heard you say you're sorry. And when I talked to Diane's friend, Elaine Williams, after that, she said that's what she wanted to hear at the sentencing. It was so hurtful to her. She told me that this long after her friend had been killed, she just wanted him to apologize and say, I'm so sorry this happened. And she left that courtroom without Tex McIver ever having said that. And she was really hurting when I talked to her outside. She just... You could see it in her body language. You could hear it in her voice. And she just and, and, and frankly, in what she said, she's like, I just I think it was a little unbelievable to her that he that he never said that. And the judge noted it, like I said, before he sentenced Tex McIver. And he said, I never heard you say you're sorry. And I think that speaks volumes. Such a tragic and fascinating case. Well, thank you so much for listening again. My name is Nicole Bennett, and this is my true crime podcast, Beyond Criminal Headlines, where Every two weeks, I'll feature a conversation between myself and some of the most esteemed journalists in the business who've covered some of the most notorious crimes in our history. Please follow, subscribe, review. You'll be able to find new episodes every couple of weeks on any of your favorite podcast providers. 
I wanted to give you guys a heads up. I'm going to take some time off for the upcoming holiday. I hope you're all enjoying some time off too. So there might be an extra week between now and the next new episode, but don't worry. I promise you new content is on the way. Take the holiday, go back and listen to any episodes you may have missed. Send me questions on Facebook, suggestions for crimes that we can cover, which now that I mention it, you can follow the podcast on Facebook. It's at Beyond Criminal Headlines. I post when a new episode is up and I try to feature content that's specific to the case or crime that we covered. But again, I want to generate uh, questions and a community for all of us true crime lovers out there. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode on the Tex McIver murder trial featuring esteemed journalist Veronica Waters. We'll be back again soon. Until next time, this is your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett, signing off. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.